it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, February 17th, 2022. This is the Guy Benson Show. My name is Guy Benson, your host, I am thrilled and delighted to have you here every day. Honored, really. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, every weekday. We are coming to you live from New Orleans, the Big Easy, here in Louisiana. And it's exciting to be down south here for a cool event. And wherever you're listening, we appreciate it. All around the country, all around the world. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. If you can't catch the show live 3 to 6 there's the podcast for that. No charge to you. On demand. GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcasts.com. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's the lineup today. Carl Rove, the architect. He will be here coming up this hour. Looking forward to that conversation with him. He's got a new column out today at the Wall Street Journal saying, it's looking like the Democrats need to start praying about the midterm elections because the signs are everywhere and they are rather dark. We will ask him about those foreboding signs coming up. In our next hour, since we're here in Louisiana, we are excited to welcome back to the show Congressman Steve Scalise, the Republican whip in the House, a man who would be in line to be House Majority Leader if Republicans take care of business in November. Congressman Scalise joins us in our middle hour. Jason Chaffetz, our Fox News colleague, former House Oversight Committee chairman, he will be here in our final hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m., Eastern or Central. I'm in the Central time zone here in Louisiana. Fox News alert as we get going here on the program. Stats, 78 million confirmed cases of COVID in the United States all in. That's total cumulatively, and of course the real number is far greater than 78 million. The trend on cases continues to go in the correct direction, the uplifting direction, the optimistic direction. Cases over the last two weeks now down 68%. They're cratering. The death toll climbs, but the trajectory on deaths also now going down by double digits. So Americans who have died with or of COVID over these last two years, 927,115. But the death number is going down, as I mentioned, 13% over 14 days ago. As we get going here, let me bring you the... Dow, we're down almost 600 points on Wall Street. Dow down 530, check that, 593 points at this hour. The Dow is currently on track for its worst day of the year thus far. Stock losses across the board accelerating. The Dow, as I mentioned, down nearly 600 points, currently trading at 34,341. And we'll bring you an update at the top of the next hour and see where things close up when the closing bell sounds in just about 51 minutes up in New York. Yesterday we came on the air with good news, and that good news was about San Francisco's vote to toss out three school board members who were just 
radically, comically, cartoonishly left-wing and woke, who spent their time focusing on totally ridiculous, ancillary, preposterous equity projects at the expense of really doing the most important parts of their job and their core functions, such as having children in schools. We talked about this yesterday. It was an overwhelming vote in all three of the races. These were elected members thrown out on their rear ends because they were too busy worrying about George Washington being offensive to the point that you can't name a school after him in San Francisco while school classrooms were barred and shuttered for a year and a half. There are other factors at play. We got into some of that yesterday. You can go back and listen to the podcast. That was how we opened the show, and we actually have some updates on that story out of San Francisco. The hard left not taking those losses well. And they are blaming, of course, racism, because why not? I mean, they they blame that for everything. Some of these people get out of bed, stub their toe, and blame it on white supremacy. And it's just so unserious. And we'll bring you that update later on today on the program. But I also wanted to let you listen to another piece of good news on the general front of education and schools. We brought you the breaking story yesterday that Governor Glenn Youngkin in Virginia had signed into law this new bill that's sort of a restructured statute in Virginia, with some bipartisan support, mostly Republican, that not only requires in-person learning for the days to count as school days, that's important, enough of this failed experiment of virtual learning, that's number one, but crucially, and I think part of the huge national story here is, it gives parents the freedom to make the choice for their children about whether or not that those kids would wear masks in schools. And you know my position on this. I think I have fortified that position and reinforced that position and justified that position over and over again with data and information and actual science. And now it is the law in Virginia. Over all these objections and a lot of the hysteria and the resistance from some of these left-wing counties that want to say, we're not going to do this. Of course, Yunkin was just a few weeks ahead of the massive shift among blue state Democrats and governors, right? People on the other side of the aisle where the dam sort of broke, Yunkin, I would argue, sort of led that charge. And then with the politics, not the science, changing, a lot of Democrats said, okay, it's time for us. We have to do this too in our states, or at least give a date where there's an off-ramp because this is starting to go very badly for us politically. That's what's happened. And while Yunkin, I think, deserves a huge amount of credit for his leadership in Virginia, you don't want to forget in this context to shout out the governors who were right all along on this stuff, who've been leading on this stuff for well over a year, taking all those slings and arrows and attacks and accusations that they just don't care about dead kids and all this craziness. And I know Ron DeSantis in Florida is at the top of that list, but there's a bunch of others, too who were refusing to allow that to happen in their state for a long time at this point. So I'm not losing sight of those people. I'm not sort of leaving them behind because it's old news. I think that their correctness early matters a lot. 
The reason that we're talking about Youngkin is because he ran on this. He won on this. He was attacked in the campaign, overcame those attacks. This is what the people of Virginia elected him to do, and now he's done it. He did it by executive order. They said, nope, we're going to sue. We're not going to abide by it. You don't have the authority. There's a law that says otherwise. So then they went and they changed the law. And yesterday afternoon, in cut 19, Youngkin signed the law. Children have not only suffered learning loss, they've suffered relationship loss. And now's our chance to give all parents the rights to make decisions that we know they have, but to put it into law. Today we are reestablishing and restoring power back to parents. reestablishing our expectations that we will get back to normal. This is the path. This is the path. So thank you all for coming. And now we're going to do a little work. And then he sits down and gets out the pen and signs it. And it's the law in Virginia, not just an executive order. It's an implemented, as of March 1st is the deadline, it's an immediate thing. It's now the law. And credit to the handful of Democrats in the Senate that helped make it happen. You could hear the crowd there cheering. A big round of applause when he affixed his signature to the document. And because of a previous power grab from the Democrats when they were in charge, he was able to have this emergency rider attached to the legislation passed by a simple majority in both houses that makes it not delayed the implementation, but basically immediate. So a little tip of the cap to power-hungry Democrats for giving Yunkin the power to do that because they used it myopically for their own power purposes during the previous governor, the Governor Blackface administration. Yunkin on Fox said this, describing this broader issue, cut six, listen, the science and, and medical opinion from so many folks has changed, but also the politics have changed. This bill is very clear. Any authority, whether it's a local school board or a, a local board of supervisors or, oh, by the way, the state government that wants to mandate masks, then parents will have the ability to opt out if they think that's the best thing for their child. This is about empowering parents, and we're doing it across the Commonwealth. And the choice is the key factor. It's optional. This is not a ban on masks, as some of the dishonest framing has suggested. People can wear three masks forever and ever, amen, if they want to. But if a parent doesn't want their kid wearing a useless mask in school, that kid can show up in the classroom and smile and be seen and be heard. And the harm can stop. And the parents have that choice now in Virginia. Thank goodness. And by the way, Loudoun County, one of these blue resistance counties that said we're not going to abide by the executive order, they put out a statement saying, basically crying uncle, all right, you win. In fact, they're not even waiting till March. They're saying we're going to start next week. Parents will have the choice in Loudoun County whether or not their kids are going to wear masks in schools. They said it's now the law. That's our new policy. Fairfax County, another another one of these very blue counties, they're huddling. They've got some emergency meeting today figuring out what they're going to do. But this is, make no mistake, a total victory for Yunkin and the people who've been pushing for this. A total victory in Virginia. He won the election. 
overcoming this issue. I think it helped him, obviously. He wins the election. He puts in the executive order. Most counties abide by it. Some do not. These holdouts, these Democrat-led Northern Virginia in particular counties. And their legal argument was he doesn't have the authority. It has to be a law. The law says we have to follow the CDC. Even though they ignore the CDC on other stuff, they get to cherry pick. You know, they pick and choose from the menu of CDC guidance. But we're going we're gonna to cling on to this stuff. We're going to double down and dig in our heels. And Youngkin said, okay, fine, let's make it the law then. And they got Democrats divided on the issue. They passed this thing through. They used the emergency provision. And now you've got the dominoes falling because it's, it's just total victory. And, yes, I do have some satisfaction here that it's a total victory for Yunkin and for the Republicans, and I think this is exactly the right thing for the Republicans to be doing. And I'm very glad that Glenn Yunkin is the governor of where I live and not Terry McAuliffe, you know, anymore, or Ralph Northam before that. But more than anything, that satisfaction is diminished compared to the relief that so many parents must feel in Virginia now where their kids aren't going to be forced into this crazy superstition anymore. It has no medical value, no health value, no scientific value, the masking. Study after study, outcome after outcome has shown this over 18 months of open mask-free schools all around the world, including in this country. And as I've been saying now for weeks, the people who are sort of the dead-enders, part of the masking cult, They have to be proactively defeated. They're not going to just give it up. They have to realize that it's unpopular, that they're going to pay a political price, and you have to pull it out of their grasp. And that is exactly what's happened in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We mentioned that this was happening yesterday as we were on the air. I wanted you to hear it because it's exciting. It's a very good development. However... Not everyone, of course, is on board with this. I saw a tweet from a superintendent of a county school system down in Georgia, in Clayton County, Georgia, where there's been no mask mandate statewide, of course, under Governor Kemp, from the very early days, to his credit. But on the local level, there have been. The superintendent of schools down in Clayton County tweeted this, We absolutely support the school district's decision to require masks on all even as we have rules for behavior including not bringing weapons. Why? Because of the safety of the whole community. Mask wearing during a pandemic with a deadly transmissible virus is no different. So he's comparing a child not wearing a mask to bringing a gun to school. That's the person who's running a school system in a county in Georgia. Does that seem like the type of person who's going to be eager to take masks off kids, even though there's no medical value to forcibly masking those kids, if he thinks it's like banning guns in school? That's his comparison that he chose to make. These are the people that have to be actively opposed. Then there was a familiar voice, a familiar face. In Cut 20, guess who thinks it's still too risky to take the masks off children? Cut 20. We could get lucky because the trajectory right now is going way down. And it very well may be that if you take masks off the kids in the next week or so, it's going to keep going down. 
but you've really got to be careful. You know, you don't want to say it's an absolutely wrong decision. It's understandable why people want to take masks off the kids. But right now, given the level of activity that we have, it is risky. It's not. Masks don't work on kids in schools. They've had no efficacious benefit in schools. The trajectories are the same in places with mask mandates and without mask mandates in schools. Places that have never had masks on kids in schools have been just fine. And kids are at much greater risk driving around in their parents' car in the back seat because of car crashes or swimming in a pool. Much riskier than even if they get COVID. With masks in schools not stopping transmission because generally schools are very safe places to be because because kids are fine. Ultra-cautious people like Fauci saying it's still too risky. It's not. It's never been too risky for children and masks in schools to come off. But he's stuck on this stuff. And there's still a lot of people listening to, to him on this. I think that's unfortunate in this case, which is why we continue this fight. On the Guy Benson Show, we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. This is a pretty amazing video. A mother confronted a school board. Montgomery County, Virginia. So I guess this will become moot under the new law. But she went to the school board this week and was calling out their specific hypocrisy, showing photos of the school board members maskless in various contexts. And boy, they did not like that at all. Cut 21. Here's a picture of you right here on Facebook with a crowd of people. That's it. With no mask on. Uh, this is my time and I don't interrupt you. Here's another picture. No. With you with a new mask on. I'm sorry, Miss Vaughn, you are done. If you are going to sit there and disparage a member of our school board, then you can sit down. If you have something effective to say, I am not going to sit here. This is not Can we have a police officer, please? Really? Yes. And then they bring in the police to take this woman away. She's up there making the point that these adults post photos of themselves publicly not wearing masks in crowds, but they're requiring kids to do things and wear masks and that sort of thing in school. And, you know, the gavel starts going, order, you're out of order, get out of here, you're disparaging us, bring in the cops. Defeat these people. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We continue on the Guy Benson Show from New Orleans today and tomorrow. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. Joining us now is Carl Rowe, former Deputy Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to President George W. Bush, author of The Triumph of William McKinley, 
He's a columnist for the Wall Street Journal and a Fox News contributor. Carl, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You have a column out. Democrats better start praying about the midterm elections. Uh, We went through some of the polling data here yesterday on the show. It is grim, certainly for the president. Give us some of your big top-line bullet points about why you feel like things are so ugly for the Democrats right now where they might need to start looking to a higher power to save themselves. Well, first of all, as you said, uh, the numbers are bad. Uh, You go through all of the polling and, uh, you know, the president's approval is 42, his disapproval is 53, on the economy it's 38, 57, immigration 33, 55, foreign policy 37, 54, inflation 28, approved 69, disapproved, crime 36, 61. So he's in bad shape and nothing short of a 9-11 moment that unites the country is going to change those numbers between now and the fall. Um, and then, to me, in the point of my piece today was the incoherence. The Democrats don't have a they don't have a, a strategy. They have lots of suggested strategies. Barack Obama had a telephone conference with the House Democrats. And he said basically stop whining and start bragging on what you've done. Well, you haven't done that much, particularly on the problems that Americans care about. Hillary Clinton said, "It's quote, it's time for some careful thinking about what wins elections and not just in deep blue districts. That set Bernie Sanders off, who said basically, let's vote on, let's bring up all of the individual items of the Build Back Better plan and vote on them so we're on the record and Americans can look at what the great benefits they get, all the free stuff they get. So, I mean, it just, they don't have a plan. And they, they're not likely to have a coherent strategy between now and the November election. And you just look at some of these electoral outcomes along the way, Carl, from Virginia and New Jersey, now even San Francisco. There was the Politico story this week that reported on uh, C internal polling showing that these culture war attacks are landing and landing hard against the Democrats from Republicans. And I think a lot of this is stuff that they've brought on themselves, right? Joe Biden campaigned in a way that is unrecognizable from the way that he's actually governing. The hardcore left-wing element of the party seems to be running the show in a lot of ways, and the American people sense that. I mean, the, the culture war attacks are landing because they resonate, because people are seeing what's happening across a whole host of issues, cultural and otherwise. They don't like what they're seeing, and the Democrats basically come back with, shut up, you're a racist, follow the science, no matter what the science actually shows. And it seems like this recent stampede maybe to try to get closer to the middle from the Democratic Party and these governors saying, oh, wait, never mind on the mask mandates and some of these other restrictions. We've we got we to gotta move on. Uh, the science is changing is what they claim, and it's transparently political. I just wonder if you think can they make that adjustment soon enough to mitigate and limit some of their losses in November or – is the is the die cast already? Well, the die is largely cast. Yes, can individual members, can a governor polis in Colorado go out and say, you know what, uh, look at what I've been doing. I've been uh, far more uh, welcoming of uh, classes to be held in person and businesses to be open than um, uh, other Democratic governors in other parts of the country, and maybe that helps him. But 
the, the problem for the Democrats is, is that the message is set by the people at the top. And when you have the Biden White House dismissing inflation as transitory and mocking people who are who are upset about the mask mandates and when you and have crime. Democrats yeah, yeah, crime, I was just about ready to say. And when you have Democrats sort of basically saying, Well everything's okay, don't worry, uh yeah, it's a problem. And uh the, the people people understand that there are going to be individual politicians in both parties who who deviate from the dominant strain of that party, but each party has a dominant strain, and it's it's a little too late for Democrats to come out after you know praising the protesters in Portland and wringing their hands over the injustices you know meted on the American people in Seattle and you know saying we stand in solidarity with with those who would defund the police and and we want to make bail easier. It's then hard for them to to say, well, we're tough on crime. Because they've spent several years creating a much different narrative with the American people about where they do stand. And then the crime is getting worse in the places that they control. And a lot of that has to do with the people that they've elected to positions like, you know, district attorneys that don't really believe in enforcing the law in a lot of ways. I mean, it's they can they can say whatever they want. They can try to put new spin on things. It's the reality that they're running into. It's this buzzsaw of reality, which brings me to my next question, because you've also you've said it here on the show in our previous conversations. You have it in a recent column where you're saying, where is the Republican agenda saying, hey, if you elect us, here's what we're going to do for you in 2023 and beyond. You know, if you put us in power in Congress, then you start thinking about a presidential election. I understand that. I mean, I'm, I'm the type of person who feels like you want to vote for something. You want to know what a party is going to do uh, affirmatively uh, to, to, for the public good and that sort of thing if they are entrusted with power. I guess my devil's advocate argument back to you would be, and I don't think it's that far-fetched either because it seems like this is the Mitch McConnell approach, and McConnell's a pretty wily operator. He knows what he's doing. Why... Does there have to be a commitment of the Republican Party to do a bunch of things if they win? Couldn't it just be in this circumstance with the Democrats imploding and Biden unbelievably unpopular? Couldn't they just say, we're a check and a balance on that? We need an end to pure Democratic governance. And it's just like, a, you know, it's a, it's a resistance campaign, basically. If you're not happy with what you're seeing, we need some changes. We need some checks and balances. Vote for us. And that's it. Nothing beyond that is necessarily required to perhaps win big. Do you think that's wrong? Well, I think, I think you're right that the Republicans can win on that message. But I'm talking about the difference between um, winning – a really good election and winning a really big, big victory, because I think the difference between those two outcomes is going to be winning in marginal races where there are going to be just enough independents who say, you know what, it's okay to, you know, the the people who are in there haven't done a good, good enough job. But what what makes you think I, I believe that you're going to do a better job? We need to answer that second question. So this may be the difference between you know picking up 24 seats and picking up 32 or 33 seats, or and the Senate picking up one seat and picking up three seats. 
So I think it matters a lot. And, and second of all, it matters to the long-term health of our political system and to the long-term health of the Republican Party. Because one of the interesting things, and I wrote my piece last week about the efforts in the House to do this, and I know there are similar lower-profile efforts in the Senate. They're literally thinking about what it is that we're going to do when, when we get the majority. And McCarthy made it, Leader McCarthy made an important decision by, by putting seven task forces on all the big issues and making certain that there are people on that, those task forces who represented all the committees of jurisdiction in that area. So when you're talking about the economy, you've got ways and means, you've got energy and commerce, you've got financial services. When you talk about national defense, you've got the budget committee, appropriators, plus the, the Armed Services Committee, plus the Intelligence Committee, plus the Foreign Relations Committee, so that you've got the – you're starting to have people who are going to be around next time who are thinking about what it is that they want to try and do. And as a result, they're going to have done a lot more homework and foundational work before they take power. And, and what that also means is McCarthy is pointing to something that's really critical for America. He's saying we are not going to govern – by having me, the speaker, the, in all likelihood the speaker, and a small group of aides and, and key members write the legislation and shove it down the throat of the Congress. Instead, we're going to do this in regular order, so committee chairs are going to have the responsibility of organizing hearings and oversight, and members are going to have to do the work, and they're going to write the bills, and they're going to debate them, and they're going to negotiate on them and refine them, and the, and the system will be better off for that. And I think he's absolutely right. We've gotten to a point in America where, as, as Nancy Pelosi famously said, remember, this was, I think, 10 years ago, more than 10 years ago, we have to pass the bill to understand what's in it. That's not healthy for our country. We want the legislature to work as the legislature is supposed to work, which means from the bottom up, not necessarily. No, totally. I mean, up. I totally agree. And I love the idea of a return to regular order and not all this crazy dysfunction of continuing resolutions and careening from one crisis to another and these backroom giant bills getting written and then just dropped and you've got to vote on it in you know two hours or whatever that's all crazy town and it's been uh really institutionalized as normal in washington even though it shouldn't be normal it's not normal i think by most people's definition but I also don't think, Carl, that Republicans are going to win by arguing on a return to regular order. Right? I think they could just be like, look, uh, we aren't the Democrats. They're crazy. They're failing. They want to do all these horrible things. We want to stop them. Vote for us. You say that could win them a, a nice victory, maybe not a huge victory. They're not necessarily maximizing their opportunity. Okay, so what would you say – from where you sit, if they want to have something of a proactive agenda, because you don't want to give the Democrats a ton of stuff where you're, you know, shackling all your candidates to defend certain policies and giving the Democrats stuff to attack, what would you say would be the the safe political terrain for Republicans to mostly say, vote for us, we're not the Democrats, but also here are three bullet points of what we want to do as our governing, you know, uh, strategy or philosophy moving forward. What would be uh, those three-ish points that you think would maximize their chances for success and minimize their chances for self-inflicted damage. Great. Well, look, uh, first of all, this this has to be drawn from who the candidates are and what they 
want to do and what what they're passionate about because voters will read that but for example on the economy somebody would do, somebody could say you know what we've got to rein in this unnecessary government spending we got we can't keep spending like this because we're we're we're, we're depreciating our currency we're creating inflation by the you know too much money chasing too few goods that's what's happening when the government spends all of this money 5.8 trillion dollars on covid relief that was essentially borrowed from our kids and our grandkids what that does is that creates inflation, and we got to rein in the unnecessary spending. A crime. Somebody's got to say we have got to stand as a party from the from the from the from the lowest levels to the national level as a party of law and order. Which means we want to have tough. We want to have sufficient police. We want to back up our police. We want to have tough but fair laws on our books, and we want to have tough and fair bail laws on our books so we do not have a revolving door of violent criminals being arrested and then let loose. And here are some specific things we ought to do at the federal level. The, the, you know, health care, we got to be – Republicans can't simply say everything's hunky-dory. they got to have an alternative to the government taking over health care. And they, they can stay – they don't have to have the you know, comprehensive, you know, top-to-bottom proposals, set of proposals. But if they said, you know what, one of the bad things about the Affordable Care Act was it reduced the amount of money that people could save tax-free for their out-of-pocket medical expenses. We ought to allow people to save for the day that they might have to go to the hospital or, 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 or go through procedures. And and do it tax-free, just like we do for retirement and education. Why are small business people being screwed? They don't get the discounts the big companies get. Why don't we allow small businesses to pool their risk and get the same discounts big businesses get? You know what? We need to end these junk and frivolous lawsuits that are driving up the cost of health care everywhere across the country, and I think we ought to do the following. I think those kind of ideas would, would cause people to say, you know what? That sounds like a good idea, and you know what? That makes me feel like you really do care about me and the and the things that my family faces. So, you know, we can we can win. Don't get me wrong. We can win by simply saying we're going to be the check and a balance. But we're not going to win as big as we can win if we put the time and energy and effort into saying what it is we will do if we will govern. And more importantly, for the long haul, it will strengthen us as a party because if we say we're going to do it and we go in and do it, and the, and the results are what we think the results will be, then that will strengthen us for 2024. Which is what we're seeing in the first month or so of Glenn Youngkin. You know, promises made, promises kept. This is, you know, getting the ball rolling and building momentum. Carl, last question, and it relates to this. I am. I, I hear your point, and I'm largely sympathetic to it about Republicans needing to have an affirmative agenda uh, so that they don't, leave, let's say, points on the field, right, in, in some of these races. What worries me more on that front is the infighting and, you know, the, the primary challenges and the purging of people who aren't, you know, good enough or loyal enough on Trump or whatever the issue might be, the RNC resolution, censuring members, and, you know, you've got incumbents, successful conservative incumbents getting challenged only because of, like, personality conflicts involving the former president. That's what worries me about Republicans leaving points on the field, seats on the table, when they could perhaps win a, you know, big majorities, it seems like that, in my mind, is a clear and present danger uh, to Republicans maximizing their gains. I couldn't agree more. It's more difficult to to solve, particularly because a lot of it is, um, you know, the president, the former president saying, I want my guy or gal in, and I, you know, I don't trust that that person because they've been insufficiently loyal to me, and uh, and that's problematic. But, uh, 
that, that's why I'm focused on something that I can actually do something about, which is try and say to Republicans, figure out what you're for as well as what you're against. Because while it's easier to figure out what you're against and more difficult to figure out what it is that you're for, it's more important to voters that they know that you've been thinking about that latter question as well. Carl Rove, former deputy chief of staff and senior advisor to President George W. Bush. He's a Wall Street Journal columnist. His most recent column, Democrats better start praying about the midterm elections. We discussed it here. You can read it there at WSJ.com. He's also a Fox News contributor. Carl, always enjoy it. Thanks for stopping by. You bet, Guy. Thank you so much. All the best. And it is the Guy Benson Show, and we will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. As Guy Benson show, I just want to bring you this story, and it's not necessarily huge news to you or breaking news to you, but it is still, I think, highly consequential. And it's one of the after effects, side effects, a really bad, deadly one to COVID craziness and COVID paranoia and over-the-top COVID so-called mitigation strategies. And that is this. According to Medscape, a drop-off in cancer screenings during the first year of COVID-19 and the pandemic has now led to a marked increase in people presenting with advanced forms of cancer, breast and colon cancer. Cancers where if you catch them early, there's a much greater chance of survival and overcoming cancers. But because we focused like crazy on the issue of COVID, and I get it. It's uh, this big pandemic and people are dying and going to the hospital. But by overcorrecting and going too hard on that issue and not assessing, assessing risk properly and scaring people away and having them stay away from any medical facilities, oh, they're overrun, don't come here, there are consequences. And people didn't get checked, and now they've got later stage cancers. And that is a real danger. The consequences, we're just learning about them, and it's going to keep growing, sadly. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. It is fresh, our second of three hours, middle hour here on the program. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time every single weekday. And then it's around the clock on demand for free, the whole show, on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert as we begin this hour. Just a tough day on Wall Street. The Dow hammered down 622 points at the close, ending at 34,310. NASDAQ closed 15 percentage points below or 15% below the high. And it was the worst day for the Dow of the year. I know it's still early, mid-February, but the worst day of 2022 for the Dow. With us now is House Republican Whip Steve Scalise, a Republican of Louisiana. And we are broadcasting from Louisiana today and tomorrow in New Orleans. He represents the 1st District in Louisiana Author of the book, Back in the Game, One Gunman, Countless Heroes, and the Fight for My Life. Congressman, it's great to have you back here on the show, and it's great to be in your state again. 
Hey, Guy, and uh, welcome to New Orleans. you got to go get some charbroiled oysters, eat some great food, and uh, I know uh, folks are really glad to have you there. We had a fabulous meal at, what's it called, Pascal's the other night? Which Pascal's Manali barbecued shrimp. Oh, yeah. Had some of that barbecued shrimp, had some gumbo, did the thing, and we've got a really exciting <laughs> dinner reservation tonight. Um, one of my favorite restaurants in the country. So really stoked. When you come down here, you have to go and put some extra time in at the gym because the food is just so good. And it's not necessarily health food either, but it's delicious. So it's one of my favorite features of your state and this city in particular. Congressman, I want to start today this interview by playing you a soundbite. This is from the majority leader over in the other chamber. This is Chuck Schumer of New York talking about the issue of inflation, cut 17. The other side, sadly, seems oftentimes motivated by something else. Rather than working with us in a bipartisan spirit, our Republican colleagues seem more comfortable giving speeches that go on and on about rising costs without offering any solutions. Complaining about the problem doesn't make inflation better. Proposing solutions does. And that's precisely what Democrats will continue focusing on. Over the next month and beyond, Members from our side will continue offering a number of solutions, solutions that will lower costs and leave more money in people's pockets. Okay, Congressman. So forgive me here, uh, but he's saying, oh, you can't just complain about inflation. You've got to do things, and we've got solutions. Am I wrong, or is this the party, his party, the Democratic Party, that – while whining that Republicans won't work with them on these solutions, have they forgotten that their solution is spending $5 trillion more trillion on wasteful spending? That was their plan. That's what they were just trying to pass on a partisan basis like a few weeks ago in the middle of crazy inflation. Their solution that I guess he's boasting about while banging on the Republicans is trillions in new spending. That seems like a very strange argument for him to try to make. Yeah, Guy, and, and maybe Chuck Schumer needs to go back to economics school. Uh, I don't know if he ever did, but clearly he he, for, he forgot some of the key elements of economics, and, and we might need to take him down memory lane and remind him, as you said, that starting last year when they got the House, Senate, and the White House, they started a massive spending spree unlike anything our country's ever seen, to the tune of not hundreds of billions but trillions of dollars. And it was trillions of dollars to do things like paying people not to work, uh, you know, to pay to bail out failed states. And if you look at the results of it, uh, they combine that with really, really stupid energy policy where they shut down the Keystone Pipeline. They banned drilling on federal lands. And by the way, every step of the way, we had solutions. We had bills that would have been, should have been bipartisan to reverse some of these things that they were doing. And they blocked every single one of them. And so is it any surprise that costs were higher? when the federal government was spending, borrowing and spending trillions of dollars and shutting down American energy while Biden's begging OPEC to produce more. Biden's begging Russia to produce more. By the way, that gave Russia billions of dollars to then go start moving on Ukraine. Those jobs and that energy should have been made here in America. We'd be paying a whole lot less. We were paying less than $2 a gallon for gasoline before Chuck Schumer started his solutions, which now have gotten us over $5 a gallon in his home state of New York. So, you know, we'll be happy to take them down memory lane and we'll be happy to show them the bills that will fix the runaway inflation. But it starts by reversing the failed things that they did, which is the big yeah. move to big government social. Or at least just stop. Trillions right? And shutting that, that stop, just stop the bleeding and open up American energy again. 
Yeah, I mean, that to me is a huge difference between the two parties right now. The Republicans are saying, okay, we see these trillions of dollars that have gone out the door, including $2 trillion at the start of the Biden presidency, totally partisan, so-called COVID bill. And a lot of people are still waiting on those tests to show up at their house. They seem totally caught off guard, massive testing shortage at the holidays for the Omicron spike. Schools were saying, though, we, we don't have enough money. We still need more money to open safely or to, you know, where did all that money go is the point. Two trillion dollars. Yeah. That was just under that was not a bipartisan spending bill, as some of the other ones yeah. were in the, heart the, of the way, pandemic. Took, cities like Chicago took two billion dollars just to Chicago to open up schools. And then they turned around and bowed to the unions and shut the schools yeah. down. Close them again. Get that money back. That would be a and good where, And where'd the money go? On If it's not going to schools and, and it's not going to making sure we have more than enough right. testing two years into this thing, what are they spending on? And the Republicans look at all this and say, okay, we think with the cost of everything going up and inflation being a problem, at the very least we should stop spending trillions stop in new, new dollars. Yes, and what the Democrats say is, well uh, – no, we want to work with you on a bipartisan basis, and if you don't want to work with us, then it's your fault. And our solution to the inflation is to spend $5 trillion more in new spending. It's, it's pretty mystifying, actually, Congressman. Spending spree. How about you no. take the money that they gave to the unions and give it to parents and let parents send their kids to a school that's willing to educate their kids in person instead of giving it to union bosses who are shutting the schools down. That'd be a good place to start. Yeah, that's exactly right. In the meantime, we have this interesting shift where the new refrain or the new mantra is, oh, the science has changed or the science is changing with some of these Democrats finally coming around on mask mandates and realizing this is a political liability for them at this point. So on a dime, all together, you notice that the science all changed all at once. And, of course, that's ludicrous. The science has been quite clear for a while. The politics have changed. And that also apparently applies to the State of the Union address. We saw there was an NBC report yesterday that the White House was asking for new masking guidance from the CDC in time for the State of the Union address, which is not science timing. That is politics timing. And then just today it was announced that, after all, Pelosi's plan to keep a very limited crowd at the State of the Union, that's out the window. They've decided that the science has changed and it's now safe to have everyone there for the State of the Union on March the 1st. I wonder, A, what you think of that, and B, if you have heard my proposal, which is to give the State of the Union response to Governor Glenn Youngkin right across the river, and if Pelosi, I guess this is now changing – with the so-called science, if Pelosi is going to lock a bunch of Republicans out of the House chamber and not let them in due to COVID for Biden's speech, have Youngkin give a speech to the House of Delegates packed House down in Richmond and the Republicans can go show up for that, send a message to the country. We're the party of normalcy. They're not. I guess Pelosi realized that another empty State of the Union would be very bad theater for them. And thus the science has changed. Yeah, and what you're seeing is on the Democrat side, they're more concerned with political science than medical science. And this has been going on for over a year. I mean, you just watched the Super Bowl. You had 73,000 people there. And by the way, all your favorite celebrities were there without masks on. The governor was there. The, the mayor of L.A. who tells your kid he can't be 10 feet away from the teacher without a mask on, but he's there without a mask on. I guess he was holding his breath the whole time. Uh -huh. But look, I think last year their concern was that they, they're not a lot of their members that want 
to be seen with Joe Biden because his numbers are in the tank. I think maybe 65 percent of Democrats say they want a different nominee in 2024 for president. Uh, that's Democrats uh, in the polls. So people are fed up with their big government socialism and what it's done to drive inflation and high gas prices and an open border and a debacle of an American foreign policy that's an embarrassment all around the world to the point where Russia, China, you know, go look. I mean, Afghanistan was the first to uh, to show the world just how failed of a policy this guy's got. Uh, but, you know, this is why we're working to take the House back. I think people are fed up. But Youngkin would be a great response. Tim, Tim Scott was a phenomenal response. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, maybe the first time that the response to the State of the Union was better than the State of the Union itself last year. The left went nuts because Tim did such a phenomenal job. You know, Youngkin, I think, would draw more more viewers uh, than Joe Biden if, if Youngkin gave the response. I'd love to go see that, too. I want to ask you about something that we talked about, Congressman, in the previous hour with Karl Rove, and that is one of the things that actually – one of the few things that worries me for the Republicans this cycle is disunity and infighting. I think the Democrats are in huge trouble for all the reasons that we understand. You've articulated some of them. The numbers are horrific for Biden right now. And look, we're nine months out. It's a long way to go. But I see stories about the RNC censuring Republican members and all these primary challenges, even to incumbents, because it's, you know, wrapped up in loyalty pledges and loyalty fights looking backwards to the last president, the last election, and, you know, with the legitimacy of that election. I see that Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, has now come out and endorsed an opponent, a primary opponent of a sitting member in Liz Cheney. Is this a healthy thing for a party to be fighting each other over an old battle when the danger right now in front of us, obviously, is unified Democratic governance and the Biden administration. Are we are we risking on the conservative side of things on the right? Are we risking not maximizing our potential victories by engaging in a something of a circular firing squad over something that's in the past? And look, I mean, political infighting is nothing new. It's, it's something that's been going on on both sides as long as I've seen politics. I mean, my focus is on what we need to do to flip seats that are held by Democrats over to Republicans so that we can fire Nancy Pelosi and win the House. Uh, look, I was in uh, San Antonio, Texas last week. I made a big swing through Texas, probably raised about a half a million dollars in our efforts to take the House. But when I was in San Antonio, AOC was also in San Antonio. We were not there hanging out together. She was there campaigning against two sitting Democrats that she's trying to beat in their primary. And so, as you can see, it's, you know, it's going on some in both sides. But everywhere I go, voters aren't talking about that. They're talking about those kitchen table issues. They're talking about inflation, jobs, the economy, uh, that, you know, you can't get, find workers if you own a small business. And they're talking about the border. They're talking about high gas prices. And they recognize that Joe Biden is the one who created this working with Pelosi and Schumer. And they want to get rid of this. They want to reverse it. And uh, I think we're going to see a very historic election uh, in November, where Republicans win in a lot of places that you might be surprised. I mean, look, yesterday a new poll came out in New Jersey, and Tom Kane, uh, the Republican candidate uh, who's running against Malinowski, is, is dead even, and Malinowski's below 50. And that's in a congressional seat in New Jersey. We're going to win in a lot of places this November. So I think you're seeing mostly unified Republicans. There's always been, you know, the factions on both the Republican and Democrat side that, that sometimes clash, but I think most people are unified in beating big government socialism. And even Democrats are starting to come our way 
because they recognize, and, and again, you saw it in Virginia. Virginia is not a purple state. It's a blue state, and they just elected a Republican in Yonkin who's doing a great job. And, uh, and yep. so I, I think it's going to be it's going to continue that trend for us. And, uh, you know, let's just keep moving forward and, and keep the focus where it needs to be. Got to leave it there. House Republican Whip Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Great to be here in New Orleans, Congressman. Talk to you soon. Thanks for dropping by today. We're glad to have you in New Orleans, guys. Take care. We'll be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. This is quite a correction in the Washington Post. Democracy dies in darkness, of course, is their slogan. They have a news story that they put out about President Biden's search for a Supreme Court nominee. Of course, we know the skin color and the genitalia of this person because he's announced it ahead of time. We don't know who the actual person is. So he had those two priorities first, and then he'll fill in the blanks with an individual that kind of fits into that mold, all about identity. And this Washington Post story is about the various factions and people who are trying to make their suggestions or influence Biden's thinking over the course of this process. And you've got members of Congress like Jim Clyburn, and that's the whole point of the story. But there was a paragraph that caught some people's attention, and this was written by top Washington Post journalists. These are not opinion writers or columnists or someone with, you know, a hot take on the opinion pages. This is a news story. This made it from these two journalists and through layers of editors and all of that. Here's what they write. Quote, nobody that I'm aware of feels that opposing Clyburn's nomination would be the wise thing to do. Talking about Clyburn's preference in these sweepstakes. If you know that a person has been vetted by Jim Clyburn, you know that person won't go to the court and end up being a Clarence Thomas. They're quoting Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi. And the Washington Post reports that the Clarence Thomas barb is, quote, referring to the black justice whose rulings often resemble the thinking of white conservatives. And, of course, they have capital B black and capital W white because that's the new style guide. When we're talking about race, because it's just like identity fixation with these people. But think about how truly shocking it is, even with all the bias and everything that we know about the Washington Post. And we know how incredibly shabbily Justice Thomas has been treated by the left for his entire career. Right. A black conservative man with an immense amount of power and influence. They cannot stand that and they call him every name in the book he's heard it all it started in his confirmation hearings and it's never really stopped but they refer this is in a news story in the washington post is clarence thomas referring to the black justice whose rulings often resemble the thinking of white conservatives like there's black thinking and there's white thinking and the implication i guess is that Thomas is just some puppet doing the bidding of white people. That's the implication. It's a very ugly thing to write. I mean, even by our racialized standards of today, this is extra racial and gross. And there was enough of an outcry about it that the Washington Post felt like they had to clean up their story and issue a correction. Here's what they wrote. A previous version of this story imprecisely 
refer to Justice Clarence Thomas's opinions as often reflecting the thinking of white conservatives rather than conservatives broadly. That reference has been removed. It's a form of soft bigotry, and minorities who are conservative bear the brunt of that bigotry. And I would say at the top of that list would be Justice Clarence Thomas, who is a principled constitutionalist, and it doesn't matter what the color of his skin is, even though some people obsess over it and almost don't want to count him really as a black man because, what, he's some vessel for whiteness? That's what they say about him. Nasty, nasty stuff. At least they changed it and made the correction. The fact that it was necessary, I think, speaks for itself. And the Guy Benson Show continues right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back on this Thursday from drizzly overcast New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. We need to talk a bit more about what's happening up in Canada. I mean, some of this stuff is really disturbing and creepy. Now, let's just set aside for a moment what you believe about the trucker protests and the blockade and all of that. Because I'm sympathetic overall to their cause. I think they've been pushed to the limit. They're fed up. Right? Truckers were essential workers and they risked themselves, risked their lives early in the pandemic with no vaccines just to keep economies moving and people fed and that sort of thing. Now they're being told to do their jobs. They have to get vaccinated. There's all these mandates on them. And they're like, enough is enough. Even though roughly 90% of them I've read are vaccinated, it's more of a principal thing. And I think the way that Trudeau is going after the misogynists and racists and all this stuff, I mean, what nerve this guy has. The Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, Mr. Blackface, right? Governor Blackface, the former governor of Virginia, at least we can narrow down his blackface incidents to one or two. Whereas Justin Trudeau wore blackface on, I think, about half a dozen known occasions and has suggested there could be more. For this man to tar everyone who disagrees with him on the other side of this issue as a racist is just appalling and galling especially coming from him like dude look in the mirror look at some of the photos that are floating out there of you as an adult wearing blackface like maybe chill with the racism accusations right at the drop of a hat so he's not helping matters i will say on the flip side of this and we referenced this with will kane last week when i was broadcasting in georgia I don't know if conservatives should be in full throat cheering on the truckers and some of their more disruptive, potentially illegal actions because we were the same people who condemned blocking of traffic for political reasons by, for example, environmentalists, as they do from time to time. Or when BLM was engaged in this sort of thing, I'm not sure that your position on tactics should depend on whether or not you agree 
with the side engaged in those tactics. All right, so I have kind of some nuanced views on this stuff, but I continue to be increasingly horrified, not just by the rhetoric of Justin Trudeau and his government, but the actions of Justin Trudeau and his government. They have started invoking this national emergency law, which a lot of the civil liberties experts in Canada are saying the threshold has not been met, not even close, to invoke this type of emergency series of measures by the government seizing bank accounts without any court order or warrant. Like, it's crazy. It's not like the government of Canada is about to be brought to its knees and toppled by an insurrection. This is an emergency of some sort, but not of this level. And yet that is the direction that Trudeau has gone. And a lot of the conservatives up there have been trotting out quotes from Justin Trudeau, talking about the previous government, the conservative government, squelching dissent in his mind. He's saying, oh, you know, a government loses its legitimacy when it tries to crush dissent. That was Trudeau then. This is Trudeau now telling people that if you are involved in this strike or this protest or you're aiding and abetting it, you can have money seized by the government, your money. It's wild. In fact, the justice minister in Trudeau's government, so their attorney general, whose name is David Lametti, he was on television. Just listen to how chilling this is, a top government official saying this in a supposedly, ostensibly free country, cut 22. A lot of folks says, look, I just don't like your vaccine mandates and I donated to this. Now it's illegal. Should I be worried that the bank can freeze my account? What's your answer to that? Well, if, I think if you if you are a member uh, of you know a, a pro-Trump movement who's donating hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions of dollars to this kind of thing, then you ought to be worried. Then you ought to be worried. If you're part of a pro-Trump movement, which is a very odd way of putting this, this is a Canadian movement of Canadian workers. But got to bring in the boogeyman, of course. And you're donating now. He's arguing hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars to a pro-Trump movement. Then you ought to be worried. By the way, even if this wasn't explicitly pro-Trump movement and you were donating a lot of money to it in a free country, you should not be worried that the government's going to come in and force a bank to freeze your account or seize it. That's not what happens in free countries. But that's what's happening in Canada. And what's also happening And this is just, I would say, breathtaking, but knowing the media, is it really? A list of donors to the trucker movement was hacked and then leaked. So GoFundMe and some of the other big boys in this space wouldn't allow donations on their platforms because the government's saying no and calling them racist, and these are all cowering, woke, terrified people. It's like, okay, no, we're not going to allow that type of crowdfunding to happen on our platform. So they went to some other platform. That list, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of private citizens got hacked and leaked. And then the media, rather than being outraged that these people were being doxxed for donating to a protest movement, the media said, oh, good, here's a new hit list for us. And they're going around calling these people. It's not just the Canadian media. It's our media. The Washington Post is involved in this. They are calling individuals, 
saying, hey, I see here, ma'am, that you donated $40 to the truckers. Why did you do that? Can I get your name? We're going to print this. Why did you make this decision? Small business owners, do your customers know that you've made this donation? This is why donor privacy is so important. The left weaponizes people's speech against them. And they should have the opportunity in many cases to be, in my view, anonymous for this exact reason. You have these left-wing hit lists that we saw it with the IRS, IRS data getting leaked, and then media using it and left-wing activists using it. That's what's happening now in Canada. They are doxing or chasing down, interviewing people based on small-dollar donations in a lot of cases, like 200 bucks you gave to the truckers. Explain yourself. This is the media based on hacked information. I'm so old that I remember in the lead-up to the 2020 election, remember the New York Post story, of course, Hunter Biden, the laptop? What were we told about that? It was suppressed on social media, suppressed in the mainstream media. They said, well, this is Russian disinformation. That was not true. That, in fact, was in and of itself misinformation. It was not Russian disinformation. The Biden people said it was, and the media said, okay. And they rounded up some left-leaning anti-Trump intelligence people who had retired, and they signed a letter saying, this looks like Russian disinformation. It wasn't. It was authentic. That story was suppressed, and one of the reasons the excuses given by the tech platforms, Twitter in particular, I remember, was, well, it's against our terms of service to use hacked information. Now, As Molly Hemingway tweeted yesterday, the Biden laptop wasn't hacked. That information was not hacked. That was authentic information, and it was not gained through hacking. But because we were told it was hacking, we were informed that it was hacked and Russian disinformation. That was the reason they gave to throttle and suppress the story, one of the big reasons. But here we have actual Hacked donor lists, then leaked, and all that reporting is all over the place. Mainstream news outlets are using that as a list, a jumping-off point, to go hound these people. I mean, it's amazing the double standards and just the changing capricious rules of what's good and what's bad, and it usually just comes down to, Does the left like the thing or dislike the thing? And if they dislike the thing, it's against the rules. And if they like the thing, it's not against the rules. That's how it feels far too often. And it's really, really creepy. It's Orwellian. It's Calvin Ball. The rules and the standards change endlessly. And you have a bunch of journalists out there saying like, oh, You just don't, the people just don't understand how journalism works. I'm sorry. It is true that you can use hacked or leaked information to do responsible journalism in the public interest. I would like to know in what way is it in the public interest to track down small dollar donors to this trucker protest and to call them up and phone them up and ask them to explain themselves and sort of menacingly suggest it's sort of the undertone to all of this especially if they've got a public facing job or a small business do you want your name associated with this all this misogyny and racism as trudeau calls it the point is to chill speech and involvement and if you don't think that's true just play back the tape that we just played on the podcast if you're listening you know on delay 
go back and listen to the soundbite from the Attorney General in Canada saying, yeah, you should be afraid that your bank accounts could get frozen and seized if you're part of this pro-Trump movement. That's a top government official saying it. Meanwhile, the rhetoric coming out of Trudeau himself is just insulting. He got into a back and forth during the debate in the parliament up there in Ottawa with a conservative member, Melissa Lantzman. You will hear her voice first here. She is, by way of background, as I mentioned, a conservative member. She also is Jewish. And when she makes her point, you can hear her side affirming and assenting and agreeing in the background. And then Trudeau decides to go with the guilt by association smear tactic that he's been doing and employing this whole time. And obviously the opposition, you'll hear it in the background, they are none too pleased and they heckle him. But this is the argument, if you even want to call it that, in this so-called debate that Trudeau keeps going to the well and invoking time and time again. Listen to this exchange. This is from yesterday. Cut one. If Canadians are to trust their government, their government needs to trust Canadians. Those are the words of the Prime Minister in 2015. These people, very often misogynistic, racist, women haters, science deniers, the fringe. Same Prime Minister six years later as he fans the flames of an unjustified national emergency. So, Mr. Speaker, when did the Prime Minister lose his way? When did it happen? Mr. Speaker... Conservative Party members can stand with people who wave swastikas. They can stand with people who wave uh, the Confederate flag. We will choose to stand with Canadians who deserve to be able to get to their jobs, who be able to get their lives back. You could make the case that what the truckers have done in some of their tactics are counterproductive or, in fact, illegal. You can make that case. What you don't have to do is declare a national emergency and invoke a bunch of new powers to, like, freeze bank accounts based on your decision that you want to because the nation is at stake or whatever. And what you also don't have to do, but Trudeau does over and over again repeatedly, you don't have to say that anyone who is sympathetic to this movement is therefore, by definition, connected to people who, like, have a swastika flag or something. There might be a handful of crazy people. When you get a big movement, a big protest movement against the government, some of the crazies come out of the woodwork. There are people with bad views who are bad and racist in all sorts of movements. To cherry pick a tiny handful of people who do this sort of thing, who might have a Confederate flag or a swastika, and say, like, oh, well, that's the banner of the whole protest, and if you have a problem with me... You are siding with the swastika people. It is just so lazy and gross and demagogic and the opposite of a logical, reasoned response. It is a very, very disgusting thing that Justin Trudeau is doing here. And it's not the first time you can hear the exasperation from the other side of the aisle yelling at him. They're furious, they're offended, and they should be. It's like he's incapable of good faith discussion and actually having a nuanced conversation. So instead he's like, oh, okay, Jewish conservative member who just criticized me, using my own words, by the way, against me to point out my hypocrisy. If you want to side with the swastika people, that's your business. What an awful retort. 
and she demanded, I think rightfully, an apology in cut two. I am a strong Jewish woman and a member of this house and a descendant of Holocaust survivors, and I have never made to, I've, it's never been singled out, and I have never been made to feel less, except for today when the Prime Minister accused me of standing with swastikas. I think he owes me an apology. I'd like an apology, and I think he owes an apology to all members of this house. What a disgrace this guy has become, Justin Trudeau. Even if you're more sympathetic toward his side on the law and order and breaking up the protest and thinking it's gone too far or whatever, to declare the national emergency, to use these extraordinary powers against ordinary people the way that he's doing, the leaking, the hacking, the doxing, and then the insulting and the very cheap guilt by association tactics – I think it is beyond a bad look. It makes me more sympathetic to the truckers and their cause because of the way he and this government is handling it north of the border. Again, in a country that calls itself free, it's in their national anthem. It's not feeling very free these days. And that's because of the decisions, the words, and the actions of Justin Trudeau and his lackeys. The Guy Benson Show returns after this break. We will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show and continuing our coverage of this story this week of the Quintez Brown shooting in Louisville. This left-wing activist, BLM guy, racial justice, anti-gun, columnist at the local paper, big paper in Kentucky, where he rails against Republicans, demands gun control, and then now allegedly he's been charged with attempted murder. He got a gun and tried to shoot dead a mayoral candidate in Louisville, a Democrat who happens to be Jewish, but that might not be a coincidence. Quintez Brown, Mr. Progress, tried to kill this guy, has apparently been ranting about the Jews lately on social media. So this very well could be not just a political crime, a violent crime, of course, but potentially a hate crime as well, based on some of the evidence that's emerging. And as we mentioned yesterday, BLM, the organization, they got together $100,000 and marched down to post bond for this guy. They decided to use their resources to bail Quintez Brown out of jail. This is the Black Lives Matter organization. Someone who attempted to assassinate a political candidate. And BLM saw fit to use their money, their time, their resources to bail him out of jail. What does that tell you? Where is this money going that they get from all these corporations who want to demonstrate how progressive, how woke they are? They just shovel money at BLM. There's questions about where that money's going. Who's managing that money? They've got tens of millions of dollars nationally. Well, I hope that their donors are feeling good today. That this attempted murderer was, I guess, at the top of their list to bail him out of jail for equity and progress. I guess just because of his skin color. Someone who appears to be a fanatical anti-Semite. The mask is off completely. And the Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour coming up. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. (laughs) 
from New Orleans today. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Glad to have you along every weekday. The full show is 3 to 6 Eastern. This final hour is the happy hour. If you miss any of it as it airs live, we have a podcast. It is free every single day. GuyBensonShow.com. On demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And the happy hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. Highly recommended. I am a fan myself. And as we've been mentioning this week, the long drink has expanded into four new states. Arkansas, Indiana, Wisconsin, Tennessee, all very exciting. You can check thelongdrink.com to see where it's sold near you in your area. The list of states continues to grow. You can also order online. Thelongdrink.com, always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. We are joined now by Jason Chaffetz, Fox News contributor, former chairman of the House Oversight Committee, and author of They Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste. He's also host of the Jason in the House podcast, available at foxnewspodcasts.com. Jason, great to have you back here. Hey, thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. All right. I want to start briefly with the border crisis because I don't want to lose sight of it. I know there's a lot of other stuff flying around out there and tons of other stories. But we learned, and this is a foxnews.com story today, that based on court documents, migrant encounters at the southern border increased again in January, almost doubling the numbers from January of 2021. And we know that the uptick, Jason, really started after President Trump lost the election in 2020. People started to say, okay, the door is going to fly open. Let's start heading north. And those floodgates really did open, particularly after President Biden took office. So, you know, roughly, what, a year plus ago. And here we are looking at the January numbers in 2022, and they have almost doubled what we saw in January of 21. I know many people in the press aren't really talking about this story anymore. I just want to get your reaction to it and what you think Republicans ought to do to make sure that it's front and center in voters' minds nine, ten months from now. The numbers really are quite stunning. And, and don't just think this is, hey, a Texas or an Arizona or New Mexico problem. This this really is going to affect all of us because the numbers are so huge. And you think about the catch and release and the open borders and the the um, once they get here, you know, moving them to other parts of the country. When you do so by the hundreds of thousands um, and that becomes millions, what are these people supposed to do? They're here. They're undocumented. What are they supposed to do for food and shelter and education and medicine? And all of those costs fall upon us. And look, I think we're the most compassionate nation on the face of the earth. We legally and lawfully allow about 1 million people a year to come into this country. Um, But we're failing those people and we're giving these open borders and, and these poor border patrol agents are supposed to be protecting our southern border, and, and, and they're not allowed to do their job. So right. I, I, when you couple this, too, with New York and California allowing people who are not United States citizens to vote in their local municipal elections, school board elections, um, some 800,000 people in New York City will vote uh, in their elections that are not citizens – it's hard not to kind of draw the two together and say, well, there's a reason why Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and the Democrats want an open border. They're trying to affect the, the voting population. 
what they'll say, Jason, of course, is, well, in those municipal elections, the local elections, it's only those elections. They can't vote in the federal elections. They can't vote in the statewide elections. It's only for those jurisdictions. And it's only legal immigrants. It's not illegal immigrants. But the thing is, I think you and I probably have a similar reaction to that. Number one, how can we be so sure that if they're showing up to legally vote on one ballot, that they're not going to get a ballot in on some other election while they're there and that won't get clerically screwed up or quote unquote accidentally included in the tally or what have you number one and number two if they're edging away from relying on just citizens to have the franchise and to have the right to vote if they're edging away from that and trying to expand the franchise to non-citizens i don't think it's overly cynical or overly i guess conspiratorial to suspect that ultimately they would like to have illegal immigrants voting as well. I mean, I think their actions speak pretty loudly. Yeah, and you couple that with their insistence that it is just suppression. If you ask for an identification, right? Um, you 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 are just you are inhumane to ask somebody for identification along the way. And, and except their vax card. Yeah, <laughs> show me your vax, vax card. card. But that's you the want exception. a cheeseburger and you want to sit down and eat that in a restaurant. You better show a vax card. That's right. Um, and, and they're allowing um, some of these this paperwork to be used as identification to get on an airplane, and they treat us so differently than they do, you know, a citizen. And look, it, the border was becoming more and more secure. Now it's not. This is a concerted effort by Biden and Harris. It's stunning to me. The president supposedly has spent some hundred days in Delaware but has never in his close to 50 years in Washington, D.C., ever been to the border to actually go down and meet with Border Patrol, see what the fence and the border actually looks like. Kamala Harris, you would think when she flew down to, I believe it was Honduras, she could have stopped at Nogales and had a look. No, can't do that. I think this is a black and white uh, issue. It's a choice election coming up, and there is such a contrast in the difference in positions I, I think if Republicans, I think that goes in their favor because I think most people, they want to be compassionate, but they want legal, lawful entry into this country. That's not asking too much. Meanwhile, Jason Chaffetz, I want to get your take on the Durham probe and some of the revelations that we have learned just in the last few days. We've had Molly Hemingway here, Andy McCarthy yesterday. You have an op-ed at foxnews.com, 11 implications of the Durham probe and how it could undermine the Democrats and the Biden administration. Maybe give us some of your biggest takeaways. I don't know if we have time for all 11 implications, but what are the biggest ones in your mind that you think listeners ought to ruminate over? Well, I'm I'm concerned that the government can't be trusted to protect our data, that the White House communications, they're not secure, evidently, that somebody can go in and do this, even if they're a contractor, and they'll be able to go out and share this uh, so easily. Um, uh, if they can do it, my guess is that the Russians and the Chinese and the others uh, want to be able to do that, too. I think there's a conflict of interest there with the Biden administration. I, th- I don't think we've heard the last of figuring out the ties to Jake Sullivan and the, you know, him being the national security advisor. But, you know, previously being so tight with the, the Clinton campaign, um, I question whether or not he, he should even have a security clearance at this time. And I just worry that the intelligence agencies can be weaponized for partisan politics. I mean, these are based on filings by a U.S. attorney, but also the stuff that we have learned along the way from the inspector general, over a thousand pages about the problems at the, at the Department of Justice. 
Do you think, because this was part of our conversation yesterday with Andy, do you think that this was the weaponization of our intelligence agencies or our law enforcement agencies, like deliberately where there was, just to use one word at random, collusion between the Democrats and those agencies? Or, as Durham at least seems to be suggesting, was this political actors playing dirty tricks and sort of bamboozling the DOJ, for example, to get involved in something that was political at its core, but they were kind of fooled. No, what you see is this revolving door, particularly at the FBI and counterintelligence. You look at the cozy relationship that they had going in and out of government between the campaign, going back into government, and then being able to sit down and have this cozy relationship where it sparks a story, the story then justifies what the FBI is, is is starting to do, even though they knew back in 2017 that those ties were, they had been debunked. They, they didn't see that there was any ties, but it kept escalating. And then when you put in a very culpable um, uh, and almost uh, willing traditional media who mm-hmm. really didn't probe and ask tough questions, they wrote it with certainty. They wrote it in volumes. They, it, it, the quantity was high. The quality, they said, was just absolutely there. But none of that was true. And I haven't seen any apologies, no corrections to the records. And certainly, I certainly haven't seen any of the media, you know, given their awards back. They started handing out awards to each other. <laughs> I didn't see them return those You'll back You'll a long in. time for that, Jason. Yeah. So <laughs> it, it's this so, incestuous it's incestuous group that kind of works in concert with each other because they've got the same political uh, objective. Let me ask you a final question. In my intro, in your bio, I mentioned that, of course, you were the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, Republican congressman from Utah. Oversight Committee obviously has a very important role in our process in overseeing the executive branch. That is, I think, particularly useful when you have opposite parties, right, where Yes. Sometimes if it's unified control, the oversight committee doesn't really want to do all that much oversight of the executive branch because they're on the team, so to speak. That's what's happening right now. But there is, I would say, a very good chance that in a number of months, the party control of Congress, or at least the House of Representatives, is going to change. And the House Oversight Committee will again be in the control of now the opposition, the Republican Party. What would you do if you were going to be back in that role and wielding that gavel as a House Oversight Committee chairman during this administration, where would you start? Because I know there are a lot of fronts where I think some sunlight, some daylight would be disinfecting. It could be useful. What do you think the priority ought to be for a Republican Oversight Committee should they gain control of the House? Well, they should put preservation letters in place. You can do that right now, but you do it again as soon as you're able to take the gavel and have the majority. You follow that that up with – Well, uh, for instance, the whole reason that we started actually looking at Hillary Clinton emails is that um, with some good staff work and a letter that I signed, when Benghazi, the attack happened, I sent Hillary Clinton at the State Department a preservation letter. That required her – to not only preserve what's needed under the the uh, Federal Records Act, but it also required her to keep all of her um, all the notes that she was taking, any outside emails, anything that had to do with it outside the traditional realm. It was only then that we later learned that she had set up her own server and had her own email. It was done, I think, although James Comey, you know, disagreed with me. 
it was done because she wanted to skirt the Federal uh, Records Act. She didn't want to have to preserve this stuff. And yeah, so, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and so you put a preservation letter, the net goes much wider. Then you put a subpoena in place, and you sign that, and then you try to enforce it. The enforcement of the subpoena is going to be what's really difficult. Democrats are very quick to do that on January 6th. I mean, those subpoenas are flying, and they're enforced like the next day. But we'll see how fast they're able to get the documents. The Oversight Committee has specific jurisdiction on the White House itself. And so they are that they are the committee of jurisdiction when it comes to the White House. So that would be a very important committee, given yes. everything that's happening. And given what's happening under this administration and this president, a House Oversight Committee controlled by Republicans could be something of a game changer when it comes to accountability for an administration that thus far has seen very little of it, at least formally, right? Informally, in terms of public opinion and the polling, I mean, they're taking a beating, and deservedly so. But accountability involves a lot of different things and different aspects. And I think the House Oversight Committee would play a very important role. And I think that's one of the arguments in favor of a Republican majority as a check and a balance against this runaway Democratic government and this runaway Biden administration with all these failures on so many different fronts. It would be just a buffet. I mean, a very target-rich environment for that committee run by Republicans if, in fact, the GOP does what is expected in November. Jason Chaffetz, Fox News contributor, former chairman of that aforementioned committee. His book is They Never Let a Crisis Go to Waste, and his podcast is called Jason in the House. Jason, appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks, Guy. As always, appreciate it. You bet. We'll step aside. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. So one of the best stories of the week is these three San Francisco left-wing Board of Education members getting thrown out in a recall election and just blown out, right, 70-plus percent in favor of the recall against all of them. And they are not coping with this terribly well on the hard left or among these specific individuals. Specifically, there's a group called San Francisco Progressives, and they were lamenting the outcome on Twitter with this, quote, of course we knew it already, but white supremacy is alive and very well in San Francisco. These people are out of their minds. If you are a left-wing activist and you truly believe, as you look around in the Bay Area, all you see is white supremacy everywhere, alive and well, 70 75% of the electorate, you have completely lost all connection to reality. You are untethered. But I think that's helpful. Like, it's so delusional and it's so baked in on the hard left that they will never see their fault. They will never see their excess. They will always view it as the ultimate price that they have to pay, right, as martyrs to white supremacy, and therefore they will not ever adjust. San Francisco is a bastion of white supremacy. Get out of here. I mean, the fact that the overwhelming majority, 80-ish percent of Asian Americans in San Francisco, voted in favor of the recalls in this electorate, like the people who voted, the fact that among those who voted – who were Asian-American, it was like 80-plus percent in favor of these recalls. That is telling. It's also not white supremacy, unless you want to call Asians part of white supremacy, which they do, by the way. People of color can become adjacent to or part of white supremacy under their crazy rules if they are doing things that promulgate, in their minds, white supremacy. It's just sort of this 
game where it's always a lose-lose for anyone that opposes the hard left. You can be a white supremacist of color by doing something politically that the hard left disagrees with. That's the whole game, and it's exhausting, and it's off-putting to so many people. It's deeply alienating. One of the board members that was thrown out, Gabriela Lopez, on her Twitter account, she has a Mexican flag next to her name, but no pronouns, which I find highly problematic, Gabriela. Anyway, she was recalled by a massive majority, and she says, if you fight for racial justice, this is the consequence. Don't be mistaken. White supremacists are enjoying this, and the support of the recall is aligned with this. And she links to a Washington Post story with a dumb headline. San Francisco recalls school board members seen as too focused on racial justice. She says, this headline says it all. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Well, no, a lot of people were paying attention in your city, and they decided overwhelmingly to kick your ass out of office because they were paying attention. And they were people of all stripes and all colors. It's not white supremacy. But thanks to the Washington Post for that, Helpful framing to the left-wingers. Oh, they were just too focused on racial justice. That was the problem. No, the problem was they were trying to rename a school named for Abraham Lincoln, for example, while they kept that school closed for a year and a half based on no science. That's the reason. But if they want to make it all about white supremacy in San Francisco, go for it. Talk about a defiant L. This is the definition of it. Good luck in all your future endeavors, Gabriella. I wonder what's next for her. Maybe she'll be an overpaid diversity and equity enforcer at some corporation. Or maybe a journalist. Sounds about right. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. Thanks for listening. Earlier today, we spoke with Carl Rove, our colleague, our friend, and the architect. A lot to get to on politics. He's got a new column out today warning the Democrats about what's coming. Here's part of that discussion with Carl Rove. And you just look at some of these electoral outcomes along the way, Carl, from Virginia and New Jersey, now even San Francisco. There was the Politico story this week that reported on uh, C internal polling showing that these culture war attacks are landing and landing hard against the Democrats from Republicans. And I think a lot of this is stuff that they've brought on themselves, right? Joe Biden campaigned in a way that is unrecognizable from the way that he's actually governing. The hardcore left-wing element of the party seems to be running the show in a lot of ways, and the American people sense that. I mean, the, the culture war attacks are landing because they resonate, because people are seeing what's happening across a whole host of issues, cultural and otherwise. They don't like what they're seeing. And the Democrats basically come back with, shut up, you're a racist, follow the science, no matter what the science actually shows. And it seems like this recent stampede, maybe to try to get closer to the middle from the Democratic Party and these governors saying, oh, wait, never mind on the mask mandates and some of these other restrictions. we we gotta, we got to move on. Uh, the science is changing is what they claim, and it's transparently political. I just wonder if you think can they make that adjustment soon enough to 
mitigate and limit some of their losses in November, or is the is the die cast already? Well, the die is largely cast. Yes, can individual members, can a governor polis in Colorado go out and say, you know what, uh, look at what I've been doing. I've been uh, far more uh, welcoming of uh, classes to be held in person and businesses to be open than um, uh, other Democratic governors in other parts of the country, and maybe that helps him. But the, the problem for the Democrats is, is that the message is set by the people at the top, and when you have the Biden White House dismissing inflation as transitory and mocking people who are who are upset about the mask mandates and when you and have crime. Democrats yeah, yeah, crime, I was just about ready to say. And when you have Democrats sort of basically saying, Well, everything's okay, don't worry, uh yeah, it's a problem. And uh the, the people people understand that there are going to be individual politicians in both parties who who deviate from the dominant strain of that party. But each party has a dominant strain, and it's it's a little too late for Democrats to come out after, you know, praising the protesters in Portland and wringing their hands over the injustices, you know, meted on the American people in Seattle, and you know, saying we stand in solidarity with with those who would defund the police and and we want to make bail easier. It's then hard for them to to say, well, we're tough on crime. Because they've spent several years creating a much different narrative with the American people about where they do stand. And then the crime is getting worse in the places that they control. And a lot of that has to do with the people that they've elected to positions like, you know, district attorneys that don't really believe in enforcing the law in a lot of ways. I mean, it's they can they can say whatever they want. They can try to put new spin on things. It's the reality that they're running into. It's this buzzsaw of reality, which brings me to my next question, because you've also you've said it here on the show in our previous conversations. You have it in a recent column where you're saying, where is the Republican agenda saying, hey, if you elect us, here's what we're going to do for you in 2023 and beyond. You know, if you put us in power in Congress, then you start thinking about a presidential election. I understand that. I mean, I'm, I'm the type of person who feels like you want to vote for something. You want to know what a party is going to do uh, affirmatively uh, to, to, for the public good and that sort of thing if they are entrusted with power. I guess my devil's advocate argument back to you would be, and I don't think it's that far-fetched either because it seems like this is the Mitch McConnell approach, and McConnell's a pretty wily operator. He knows what he's doing. Why... Does there have to be a commitment of the Republican Party to do a bunch of things if they win? Couldn't it just be in this circumstance with the Democrats imploding and Biden unbelievably unpopular? Couldn't they just say, we're a check and a balance on that? We need an end to pure Democratic governance. And it's just like, a, you know, it's a it's a resistance campaign, basically. If you're not happy with what you're seeing, we need some changes. We need some checks and balances. Vote for us. And that's it. Nothing beyond that is necessarily required to perhaps win big. Do you think that's wrong? Well, I think I think you're right that the Republicans can win on that message. But I'm talking about the difference between um, winning a really good election and winning a really big, big victory, because I think the difference between those two outcomes 
is going to be winning in marginal races where there are going to be just enough independents who say, you know what, it's okay to, to you know, the, the people who are in there haven't done a good good enough job. But what, what makes you think, I, I believe, that you're going to do a better job? We need to answer that second question. So this may be the difference between, you know, picking up 24 seats and picking up 32 or 33 seats, or in the Senate picking up one seat and picking up three seats. So I think it matters a lot. My full interview with Carl Rove and the entire show, start to finish today, available every day, as a matter of fact, on demand on the podcast. No charge as soon as the show ends, right at your fingertips. It's easy. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, a new series of real estate developments that has at least one member of our team extremely interested and intrigued. We'll explain that when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday from New Orleans. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. So yesterday, during this segment on the show, the home stretch, we learned about the revelation of YY the Clown. Quiet Wyatt, our associate producer here on the show, was a balloon-bending costumed clown as a younger man. And he would charge a good amount of money to come in and make these animal balloons for kids at events and soccer games and that sort of thing. And he wore all of the regalia, although curiously we have not gotten the text message with the photos that he says exist of him as YY the Clown. And one thing that stood out to me in that conversation as I reflected on it last night was that Wyatt made quite a lot of money. Right, especially for being a middle schooler, I guess at the time, five or six hundred bucks for an afternoon at a soccer tournament, plus tips, as he's making all sorts of little, you know, animal balloon gifts for the kiddos and what have you, five to six hundred dollars, a lot of money for anyone, but especially like if you're in twelve or thirteen, that's a that's a good amount of money, and I wonder how many. Animal-shaped balloon characters would YY the Clown have to make in order to be able to afford a new condo or unit at this brand-new complex that's being built. And I guess it's more than one. There are new communities being built by Disney. These are Disney residential communities. And I know that they've had these. I've heard of them in Orlando, around Disney World, for the Disney fanatics with a lot of money. They buy their own condo down there, and so they can go and stay and have all the access to the park and so on and so forth. But I guess they're bringing these Disney communities elsewhere. They're expanding beyond just kind of like backyard Disney territory. Do I have this right, Wyatt? Yes, Guy. Um, Also, I just appreciate the YY tie-in um to this conversation but yeah so basically disney is building <laughs> new communities um that are are not like the parks because me and christine talked about this earlier today they are not like mickey mouse and star wars they're just built and operated and run by disney and they're it's the quality of of a disney resort like place and so they're they're going to be like uh like resorts but you could live at them and where is this happening 
The first one is going to be in Palm Springs, California, and then they're going to expand to other locations around the country, I guess, if they, they, uh, they make out big. Do they have any plans to build one of these communities in Xinjiang province? Not, China. not that you, I'm aware no, of. No, okay, because I know they're, they're tight, Disney is, with the Chinese government and the Communist Party out there thanking them for letting them film, for example, movies in Xinjiang where the genocide's happening. So, you know, maybe they could develop for, like, the, the high-level Uyghurs. They can maybe have an opportunity to be uh, concentration camped in a Disney community in the future. That's just something that maybe they could put on the bulletin board over in the brainstorming session there at Disney. Uh, but moving past those politics of this, are these going to be very expensive communities to live in? Because my understanding is the residences that they've built right by Disney World are quite pricey, but also pretty high end. Yes, yeah. These are I'm I'm sure are going to be I think one of part of this this new community is gonna be a uh, an over fifty five community. Um but I do believe they're gonna be in the, you know, several million dollar range. Oh, uh, wow. just like the ones like like you said in Disney, the, the that community there right next to the to the property, I mean they're in the same range, but they are very high end luxury resort like communities that I mean people people buy. That's a lot of balloons, YY. I mean, you better start getting on it here. I mean, you got to, these side hustles, you got to, you know, maybe expand them. Maybe you could go and do some cross promotion on Shark Tank, which is, you know, ABC, Disney. You could say, look, I'm YY the Clown. I've got this business. I do balloons and I want to buy a Disney condo for myself and they could just kind of do a tie-in i know that's not fox but again it's a side hustle just putting some ideas out there would you in all seriousness if these communities you know catch on and they're successful and they're nice is this the type of thing where you would say to yourself i would like to live there as an adult or i would like to even retire to a disney community yeah, possibly. I, again, I want to reiterate what I said before. These are not like Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck like communities. These are luxury communities that are built by Disney, operated by Disney. It has the Disney touch of luxury and quality. But I possibly, I mean, I, are you disappointed I, I think, that there's no Mickey Mouse? I feel like oh. maybe you could create. Uh, a Mickey Mouse costume and sort of go around, hello, like go around the neighborhood just to really give a little extra Disney flair. Yeah, I don't know about that, but I I would like I think most people, I don't know, I think either a retirement type thing or a second vacation home type of situation that people would buy these for. I don't think most people would primarily be living in these houses um or like I said, it's like a resort. So I think it's more like of a vacation rental type thing. Yeah. I see. I see. So maybe this could be uh, an investment property type opportunity, which probably has Christine's ears perking up because she's always looking to make a buck. And she's got all sorts of schemes. Christine, are you a yay or a nay on, you know, Disney Gardens or whatever you're going to call this type of place? I am a complete nay. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but here I am. Well, Debbie Downer, that famous sketch from SNL was at Disney World, if I recall correctly. Oh. She really bummed out Goofy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. I loved that SNL, those oh, sketches. Oh, it's an all-time classic. Um, Rachel Dratch. Oh, I love her. But 
I don't know if you remember this guy, but in the 90s, in the mid-90s, Disney tried this out already in right outside of Orlando. There was an entire town called Celebration. And it was (laughs) tense laughing. And it was built amongst the idea that, you know, like these are the people that created Disney. And this is the perfect community, exactly what Walt had in mind. And it basically, I can't say the the S word on air, but that's where it went. Um, Disney decided to sell off, started selling off a lot of it. I don't think they own any of it right now. And it's just gone to the, well, I don't want to say to people who are living there because people still do live there. But it's nowhere near the idea of what Wyatt has in his mind. Yeah, the promise was not perfect. fulfilled. Not at all. And also, I have a problem living in a town that's controlled by a corporation. They could, like... They can weigh in on anything. What about the movie theater? What if Disney doesn't want the, the, the certain movies played in their movie theater or how your house is painted or what uh, if they – think it's like a Disney cult But what if they didn't situation. like my, dec- my decor outside during Well, they Christmas? would be correct about that. They would be very correct about that. They would have like a SWAT team of Disney characters fly out of a truck and confiscate all of your inflatables and then speed off. That would be plus. That would actually that would make me like this neighborhood more. I'm just imagining Wyatt, you know, years from now, decades from now, he's 90 years old, he's still reading the Wall Street Journal, and, you know, you want to send him a Christmas card or a birthday card or something, he's like, oh, yes, you can reach me. I'm at Goofy Towers at Disney Gardens. Right? That, that, I think that's plausible. I can't. <laughs> I'm like crying right now. Right? I mean, that's that's where he'd live. And, you know, it'd be a bunch of Disney people all in one place. And I know there wouldn't necessarily be all the characters floating around all the time. But, again, I think if he could be YY the Clown, he could be Mickey for a day every so often just to, you know, brighten people's spirits. I mean, people, I... People invested in Disney here for a reason. I don't think anyone's going to object to Mickey Walking down the street, although you don't want to be like one of those Times Square knockoff Mickey's, you know, where he's going around. That could be another side hustle in his old age. He could be like pressuring people to pay him for photographs like they do in Times Square with his homemade Mickey costume, except he's like 85. And these people are all at like a Del Boca Vista type thing in Boca by Disney. And, you know, he can... Wyatt seems very quiet and unassuming, but, you know, the the man needs to pay his bills. And maybe he could strong-arm some of these old folk into paying for these photos that they don't want. I don't know how we've gone down this path where he's now an extortionist. That's, <laughs> that's, where, that's where this conversation went. Oh, uh, boy. Well, okay. Uh, keep me posted on this. I, I don't think I'm going to be flocking down to one of these spots anytime soon, but... Never say never. I'm an open-minded person, and I am not surprised that Wyatt was all over this story. He was texting us earlier. He was on the list in his email of possible stories. Wyatt, did you actually discover this through the Wall Street Journal, or are you on some sort of, like, Disney mailing list where you get alerts to your phone when there's ever, like, Disney in the news? Um, I just saw it on Twitter, and I saw it on the Wall Street Journal. I had to read it on there, but... I'm just I have to say I am happy that I have now become the new Christine of of this home stretch these past two days. Just for I, a I've few enjoyed, days. I am loving it. I've enjoyed it. that. Yeah, Christine's like, can <laughs> we keep this going? 
Yeah. <laughs> She's like, we need more YY the Clown related topics here. So we continue on this. Very quickly, Wyatt, we're almost out of time. If you had to choose for the rest of your life, you can either have Disney or you can have Rook Coffee, but not the other. It's exclusive. What do you pick? Oh, I think coffee. Wow. I think it would have to be the coffee. Oh, somewhere yep. Mickey. Mickey is so, oh, no. He's very disappointed by that answer, Wyatt. <laughs> he wants you to think about that answer. You're going to go sit in the corner, and you're going to think about that answer. Okay, why, why the clown? That's your task for the next few hours. Back here tomorrow. Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show from New Orleans. We will talk to you then. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.